When you are building something no one has ever seen, something no one has ever imagined, who can you turn to for help? The answer is the other people who are facing the same issues you are. Those product inventing, boundary pushing, design obsessed folks who are just like you. Welcome to AWS Startup Stories. I'm Michelle Kung. And I'm Michael Copeland. What follows are the tools that work, the leadership practices that make a difference, and the lessons you only learn by building a company. And one more thing, what startup jockeys do with a very rare item, their downtime. So let's get to it. We're taking a deep dive into ASEAN in the following podcast, talking with founders and investors from one of the world's fastest growing startup ecosystems. From Singapore to Ho Chi Minh City, Bangkok, Jakarta, and other parts of the region, hear how entrepreneurs are tackling this massive market, what investors are hunting for, and why startups are having such an impact across all dimensions in this part of the world. Welcome to the AWS Startup Podcast. I'm here with Kalsum Lakani, who is one of the co-founders of I2I Ventures, uh, which is focused on investing in early stage startups in Pakistan. Kalsum, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. You're in D.C. now, I, I believe, mm-hmm. but you're sort of back and forth between Pakistan and, and D.C. Is that correct? Yes, I typically, before COVID hit, I lived on an airplane, but that, <laughs> is, obviously, that yeah. is obviously not the case right now. Yeah. You're Pakistani-American. Your co-founder is Pakistani. You guys have been in this space for, for a long time. And I2I Ventures is about a year old, right? I'm a, mm-hmm. a brand new venture fund. But it came out of an accelerator that you guys have been building over for years now, Invest mm-hmm. to Innovate. So tell us about Invest to Innovate and then that transition to I2I Ventures. Sure. And so um, Ms. Ba, my partner, slash my work wife, and I were partners on iDi Ventures, which is the fund that we opened our doors to last year. But I'm actually also the founder and CEO of Invest to Innovate or I2I, which is a company that I founded um, almost nine years ago now, which is crazy. Um, and I, I started the company because with it was just kind of with this belief that the next great innovators aren't coming out of Silicon Valley necessarily, but are coming out of the places that we're not talking about. So coming out of countries countries like Nigeria and Pakistan and Vietnam and all of these untapped markets where there are so many, so many young people where there's a youth bulge in terms of the population. And also because in, they're in frontier markets, there's so many problems around them to solve. And so eye to eye was really started uh, to unleash the potential of young entrepreneurs in those markets. And we started in Pakistan, which is where I'm from. I'm actually now Pakistani American, but uh, and sound completely American, but I didn't become an American citizen actually until six years ago um, and moved here when I was 18 for university. So Pakistan is really home for me in a lot of ways. And so I started in Pakistan thinking we'd be in multiple countries right away. And then you start in Pakistan and we started you know, nine years ago when the entrepreneurial ecosystem was really nascent. And I realized really quickly it was so much more important for us to go deep into one ecosystem and really do the work and understand what it meant to support and build an entrepreneurial ecosystem 
And obviously we weren't the only players doing that, um, but then then to go wide to many countries right away. So now we are, we started, you know, the country's first startup accelerator back in 2012. That work has now expanded to support other incubators and accelerators and entrepreneurs beyond our flagship program, both in Pakistan as well as in the region. And then we have a pretty in-depth research arm called Insights, which was basically started four years ago as players started to look at Pakistan, but just didn't understand it. Um, we realized that good research was something that was really needed to help kind of bridge the understanding and and allow people to understand the market a lot better in order to help facilitate players to enter as well as players that are already operating there as well as investors that wanted to look at the market and invest. And so all of that played as a prelude to our fund. Um, and the, all of that actually really kind of created the evidence that was needed for us to build a fund. Right. And so you raised, I think it was $15 million for this first fund and it's, and it's for early stage entrepreneurs. I want to back up a little bit because you've been in this, this ecosystem for since 2011 and you say nine years. And, and one thing that I can't help, but, but sort of highlight is that, you know, nine years ago, the cloud was just coming to, to sort of bear. So what have you seen? I mean, nine years is a long time in sort of the at least in the technology world, not necessarily in the right. entrepreneurial world, but what have you seen change over that time? And how has, you call them frontier markets, but how, you know, how have those markets changed over that time? Yeah, I think what's interesting is that um, we've did, now done work in, you know, in supported programs in Cambodia, Vietnam, Bangladesh, Nepal. And what I've always found really interesting, having worked in Pakistan for so long, and especially really early on, was just what the sameness was of the market. So I think they're very, there's a lot of differences, obviously, but there's a lot of sameness to how things have evolved and things that we can learn from one another. And so in Pakistan at the time, when I first started um, eye to eye, really the tech industry was very services oriented. It still is. There's a lot of service related companies and a lot of people that were setting up outsourcing shops in Pakistan. It was considered in some ways the cheaper India, uh-huh. you know, for people that had call centers and things like that. So we had a lot of tech services companies. And that was also in some ways a response to the fact that there wasn't a lot of, there wasn't really much venture investing at all in the market. So even for those tech companies that wanted to build products, services was really a much more sustainable way to actually build revenue as a company. Um, And then what we actually ended up seeing, and I've seen this happen in other markets as well, we definitely saw a lot of um, service-related companies start to launch products based on the revenue that they had. And then we started to see people spin off from those companies and launch their own startups. And so the startup ecosystem is really, you know, it's been around for a while, but I would really say has proliferated a lot over the last three to five years, especially with the entrance of venture capital funds, um, especially with, you know, the launch of new incubators and accelerators, and especially as things have matured in the technology space, um, similar to what you said about the cloud, like as things globally have also evolved, um, Pakistan, you know, obviously only got 3G and now, you know, obviously um, we have much better mobile connectivity, smartphone penetration now, but 3G penetration. 3G just launched about five or six years ago. Right. And so all of that, similar to what's we've seen happen in the African continent, we've seen in, you know, in, in Pakistan that actually really allowed that proliferation to happen quite quickly. 
And I think what's interesting is that we see in a lot of emerging frontier markets, we see very similar trends happen um, in terms of startups. So you tend to see, um, especially in Pakistan, we had something called the vintage year, which in 2015 was a lot of classified related companies get a lot of investment. You know, ones that were in the housing space, job classifieds, cars, things like that were getting a lot of investments. We saw a lot of players in the e-commerce space uh, really take off. And then we started to see people that were playing a lot of roles in servicing the different parts of the value chain of e-commerce. Then we started to see a lot of players in mobility. We saw a lot of marketplace companies. So what's interesting is that even though the markets are very different from each other, you actually see really similar trends um, happen. I always see it, especially between, I would say, Southeast Asia and Pakistan. And then I would say maybe like if you looked at MENA, I would say you would see similar things happening in Egypt as well, um, which I think is interesting. And this is something I didn't know until uh, I started doing some digging, but Pakistan by itself is a is a huge market. Mm-hmm. So there there's enough to sustain a a startup, you know, as it scales up. But then what you just described, does that then imply that, you know, if you can build a business in Pakistan, you can then scale it to Southeast Asia, to, you know, North Africa, like you say, and, and other parts of the world more easily than you might if you started it, you know, in in my backyard in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. Yes, theoretically, for sure. I think that there is a lot more similarities and we've definitely seen it happen the other ways. So I've seen with Egypt specifically, um, a company called Swivel, which is a pick and drop service, um, raised a lot of money recently in the mobility space. Swivel entered the Pakistan market uh, last year. And so we've seen that happen, you know, in the other way, it's been really rare. I mean, Zamin is one example from Pakistan as a company that's gone to, throughout the Middle East. But it's, you know, I think Pakistan is still a market that people really have to conquer. And I think, you know, as much as Pakistan technically is, you know, we are the fifth largest market in the world when we look at population size. Um, but when it when we talk about a dressable market, that's a much harder thing to sell. And I think oftentimes we'll see a startup start in Islamabad and they have to really they have to grow first to the other cities, right? And I always believe that a company can really show potential for scale and growth that they can really conquer Karachi, which is our commercial capital. Right. Um, and so that is, that's a really interesting and hard market where I think I would see a lot of similarities between Karachi and Jakarta and Karachi and Cairo than I would say between Islamabad and Karachi, right? There's a lot of differences between the two cities. Right, right. But these big urban centers where if you can mm-hmm. figure it out there, then then you, you, you're onto something. That's great. You're onto something for sure. I2I Ventures, you guys made your first investment, um, Malka Online, and it's a domestic services platform. Is that right? Yes. Um, it's an on-demand for household help. Well, and so how did that stand out to you guys and what's your criteria and, and, and what are you looking for? I mean, every, every venture capitalist says like, you know, it's team first, uh, but, but how do you guys, how did you guys go about this? Cause this was your, your maiden investment. It was our maiden investment. Correct. I've actually known uh, Malka Online from day zero of their company. They were actually part of our accelerator program three years ago. So I literally have seen them from the very beginning. And we, our fund doesn't only invest in companies that have graduated from our accelerator, but obviously having had an accelerator over eight years has obviously formed really important pipeline. And I think in Pakistan, which is a market that is so deeply relational, 
you know, trust is such an important part of building, you know, an investor investee relationship in any market, right? But Pakistan, especially where there's such a lack of data that oftentimes things really kind of come down to relationships. And so we knew the founders from day zero. I've been, you know, they continued to be mentors to our companies that graduated. I've still followed them. And so when we were looking to build out the fund and the fund, you know, is aspirationally 15 million, I will say we're still raising that, um, but we have done a first close. We're running a first phase right now to build an early track record with the support of the Dutch government and early LPs. But when we looked at Malka online, we just love the founders. They're a husband and wife duo. Uh, Mustafa is a graduate of like Stanford Business School and uh, Sonia, his wife, is, I think she is, I think she's like the first Formula One engineer from Pakistan. And so- And well, literal rocket scientist, like yeah, she's getting yeah. her PhD in rocket science. And so they're just these two badasses cool, that yeah. are so also like very emotionally intelligent leaders. And I've always just been their biggest fans. And so watching what they'd been building and how they thought about building for us, it was a really obviously interesting space. A lot of marketplace, there's a lot of marketplace plays happening in Pakistan right now, though, obviously all of them have become a little bit stunted in COVID. Right. And so, you know, for us, it was, you know, it was definitely an easy, uh, an easy yes to want them to be our first investment because it just, it was a great story too, that it was a company that we'd known for so long. So we felt good making a bet on them. And then our second investment, um, which is in a company called Telotalk, which is like a localized messenger for Pakistan, kind of like a WeChat cacao talk model. We didn't know the founders, but we really built a deep relationship with the founders um, in the course of deciding to make that investment. And that was also really important to us as well. We, we talked a little bit about Nigeria, about Egypt, and in, in some ways, you know, there's this aspect in lots of those markets of leapfrogging technologies and usually around mobile. Um, but then there's also these unique applications of technology um, to markets that certainly we see in, in sub-Saharan Africa and, and other parts of the world. Does Pakistan, like, is there a similar thing going on? There's certainly leapfrogging technology um, going on, but is what's unique about how if anything, uh, about how businesses are built and and companies take technology and and kind of mold it into the into the thing that their customers want. Right. I mean, I think that the Pakistani consumer might be a little bit different. I think that we're still. I think the challenge, to be honest, right now is that you know what we saw happen in East Africa, um, you know, with Safaricom and obviously M-Pesa and have the real leapfrogging that I think has been really impressive um, on the African continent has been around payments, and I think Pakistan hasn't really been fully able to get there because of the regulatory environment. And so yeah. I do think that there are some really, you know, there are some things that are maybe a little unique about the Pakistani consumer. I think that, you know, it is a very trust-based society. So that makes it challenging for people that are in e-commerce. Like how can you do a combination of maybe brick and mortar, or at least like that somewhat of an experience in order to build that relationship. Um, I think that we're seeing that customers, I mean, I'm just thinking right now, cause we we're doing a lot of customer discovery with Teleton. Um, our localized messenger. Um, I think what's really cool about when you look at social media right now um, in Pakistan, uh, TikTok, which is not you know, unique just to Pakistan, but Pakistan is like really taken off. Um, and this is actually really similar to India with a much less educated class of people that are maybe not as literate, but are like, you know, there's a tribesman in Waziristan in Pakistan that has like a million followers. TikTok, on TikTok followers. Right? Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah. So, cool. I mean, I don't know how unique that is because I've seen that happen in India and in other markets, really similar 
trends, which I find really interesting. Um, but I find that fascinating how, you know, my, you know, my driver and my house that I grew up with in Pakistan has TikTok and I don't have TikTok. (laughs) So I find that really interesting about like, you know, what are, what is it that, um, that vibes with a certain demographic of a population? And I think that, um, oftentimes a lot of tech companies are sometimes only appealing to a certain strata of society, which tends to be people that are, you know, especially a lot of these consumer facing businesses and people that, you know, have a little bit more um, spending power and things like that. And I find it really interesting how TikTok has kind of circumvented that. And it's really appealing to kind of this mass audience in a way that I think sometimes some startups tend to maybe ignore at, at, the, at the beginning of when they're starting to build out their companies. Not all of them, because I think Bikea, which is the go check box on, is obviously appealing to that audience as well, but very different segments though. Yeah. Yeah. You get this kind of parochial, like, well, I solved this problem for myself here in Palo Alto. And so every, yes. therefore everyone else must have this problem, which exactly. they may or may not, yeah. right? Yeah. We're definitely seeing a lot of that type of, um, I guess, photocopying um, and applying to the Pakistan market. That's definitely been happening. Not to put too fine a point on it, but it, I2I Ventures, you guys are in the business of investing uh, venture capital. So are you sector vertical, you know, agnostic? How do I get your money and how do I get your attention, I suppose? Yeah. Um, so we are sector agnostic right now. As I mentioned, we're bil- building our early track record um, as a first time fund. And so at that, because Box on Space is still very new, we, and, you know, I think being too sector specific in a country like Pakistan narrows your pipeline too much. Mm-hmm. So so we are really open, but we are a focus on because we are a venture fund. Um, we do tend to mainly look at tech or tech enables companies. Um, we obviously, you know, have, you know, we've seen outliers, you know, that are might be high growth SMEs um, that may have tech as part of what they're doing, but not necessarily uh, not enabled by tech. Um, and we'll see those outliers in the space that we're open to. But technically, um, we're probably more focused on tech and tech enabled as other VC funds are as well. Now, I, I want to ask a little bit about I mean, you guys both you and your co-founder Mizba have these kind of impact investing, social entrepreneurship backgrounds. What does that mean for you? And, and how do you sort of know it when you see it or, or build it when you want to build it? Yeah. And that's really interesting because we were just on a call yesterday where we were having this conversation about impact, right? Because we are, I mean, iDi Ventures is a commercial fund. When I started the iDi Accelerator, it did have more of an impact lens to it, but it's it's maybe a little bit more loose now. And I think both Misba, obviously her career start, um, not started, she was at Citibank first, and but was actually one of the very first hires uh, at Acumen when they launched in Pakistan. So has had a very strong background, as you mentioned, in impact investing. Yeah. And and so for people who don't know, Acumen Ventures is, is all about impact investing. Yeah. They're probably the major pioneer of impact investment um, yep. in, you know, based in the US, but obviously investing globally. And so what's interesting is that a lot of like traditional impact investment funds, or at least maybe a lot of the early pioneers really defined impact investing um, very strictly around like um, companies that were servicing the bottom of the pyramid. And for us in a country like Pakistan, we're a lot looser when we look at that. So iDive Ventures is a commercial fund, but there, you know, there is an impact lens because, but we believe impact is job creation in a country like Pakistan, where um, there is such a high unemployment rate, where, you know, job creation to me is, I think one of the best 
best examples and the best indicators of impact. And so we're really loose because I think you could claim that a localized messenger platform that's like a cacao talk is, is not necessarily a quote unquote impact investment. But I believe obviously communications is, is huge in a market like Foxconn and giving voice to people is amazing. And so I think that we definitely aren't looking at companies that are looking to be, you know, detrimental to the environment or selling cigarettes. Right. But I think in Pakistan and what I get excited about and and I think what Misbah does too and Asad on our team, Asad Jaffrey also came from Acumen right before he joined us, but was at Goldman before and, and places like that. And so for all of us that know Pakistan really well, the country has so many problems to solve. I mean, we have, you know, massive issues in healthcare. We have an education emergency. We have issues related to energy and people that are have are how many how much of the country is off grid. While not all of those sectors are potential venture plays and we we recognize that we also know that there's so much that can be done leveraging technology that can really create massive impact and, and really help leapfrog the country forward if done well and done right so obviously mock online comes across as much more of that lens uh tello doesn't um necessarily but it we can argue that but i think for us like we just get excited by people that are trying to solve big problems and doing it in a really mindful and intentional way and i think that's what gets us excited and then Obviously, you know, it has to have there is a venture play there. So we have to look at it from that lens. I think one of the things that's also underappreciated, especially if you come from places where there's a well-established venture capital ecosystem, is that that flywheel effect that as entrepreneurs become successful, they beget more successful entrepreneurs who beget more. And then like all those problems that, that you describe in Pakistan get attacked. You know, but you need to sort of build that flywheel of entrepreneur and, and success and success and entrepreneur. Yeah. And I think, you know, what's interesting is that there's a lot that can be said about what's our, what's gone wrong in venture capital, especially in Silicon Valley, but also globally. Um, and this period that we're in right now gives us a real time to be introspective of like, what is it that we're investing in? Shouldn't we be investing in companies that are potentially profitable or could make a profit? Are companies that, you know, that aren't toxic environments to work in? And, and does venture as uh, by nature of what it is, does that contribute to the toxic work environments that we've seen? And I think these are really important questions to, you know, for us as investors and, and for me as as a new investor coming from the space of having, you know, been a founder myself, but obviously also working with entrepreneurs of really being mindful and intentional of like, what is it that we're investing in and how do we actually create, how are we making the country better by virtue of investing? Right, right. And how do you observe, you know, the culture in a company that you may or may not want to invest in and decide accordingly? Yeah, yeah no, that's really important. And, and I, you're absolutely right. It's people like you are making that change. I want to jump into these questions. You are an entrepreneur yourself, and these are all about kind of entrepreneurs learning from other entrepreneurs. So with your permission, we will jump into these questions. Sure. All right. Give me a tool you use on a regular basis, something that you can't do without. Okay. So in a regular environment where I'm on an airplane, I was thinking that it would probably be a travel hack, but because I've been grounded for so long, I was actually thinking um, that a tool that I can't live without right now, I've been sleep hygiene has been really important to me. And so I have a sleep app that plays something called pink noise, which has been done research that helps you sleep very deeply and soundly. So I would say that tool has, as I've been trying to make myself sleep better, generally has the pink noise on uh, the sleep 
sleep app that I have a bunch of different noises to listen to has been very pivotal for me at this period of my life. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm hear you there, or I wish I heard you there. <laughs> um, I have to ask though. I know what white noise is. Yeah. you don't have to do a, a simulation, but what does pink noise sound like? It's basically like, uh, I think white noise is a different frequency, so still good, but apparently the research that they did on things called pink noise and brown noise, which apparently is also good, um, and white noise show that pink noise helps you stay in a deeper REM for longer. My husband doesn't quite believe me because he sleeps with earplugs, but I've sworn that I've had deep sleep for the last two weeks that I've been sleeping with this. Uh, I need it. I'm going to try it. Okay, a leadership practice or routine, something that you do with your team or you've done with other teams that really works. Yeah. I mean, I think what we do with our team is um, we do a lot of really, you know, just 180 feedback to each other and be really open about things. But what I would say for myself personally that I do is I'm constantly, um, I I take a lot of emotional intelligence seminars. I've had an executive coach um, and I'm constantly um, interrogating myself as a leader um, just to ensure that I'm constantly growing. And so I would say that I'm a really curious person and that is causing me to just really push myself in my own boundaries of how I show up in the work environment for my team. So, and then in doing that, you know, trying to give support to my team as they potentially do that for themselves. So, and how do you know you're making improvement? I mean, I don't, I hope I am. Um, Mm -hmm. I would say that, you know, the feedback is also really important in that regard. And so I do think by being able to ask for and give feedback on a regular basis, which is something that we really believe on our team, I feel like I am, you know, and I get that feedback also from the people who love me, who are around me, especially my husband who gets, gives me feedback on a regular basis. Okay. A lesson learned. Um, I would say my lessons learned are learning how to say no and not, yeah, basically not saying yes to everything and not trying to do everything. And I think I'm still very much guilty of that today, considering that I'm wearing the hat of being on an investment fund (laughs) and also still running my company. But trying to learn to say no is probably my big leadership lesson that I'm struggling with currently. And so how did you come to that? I mean, is it just because you got like, like we all do get spread too thin and then the work suffers or your sleep suffers or your marriage suffers or all of the above? Probably all of the above. I think I stretch myself. I put a lot of pressure on myself, you know, and I've been building this company for a really long time. And so I think for me, um, just feeling like, you know, when you feel like you've birthed a new baby, which is this fund, and then you have this other company that's been your baby for so long, figuring out what the lines are has been really tricky for me and figuring out like how to balance it all and how to keep, you know, and I try not to ever, because I'm a perfectionist, I try not to sacrifice the quality of the work, which just means that I've been burnt out for like a year um, of just trying to do everything really, really well. But but yeah, I think like, you know, learning to learning to slow down is also something that I'm, I'm working on. And I think COVID has actually been a really good time for that because I haven't been on a plane every other week. And so, you know, all of those things have been have been a really introspective time for me to kind of slow down a little bit and figure out what I'm what I would like to do. Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's a really good point. Have you found a good way to say no or is it 
you know, it's just the act of saying no. Yeah. I think sometimes I, my sister always says that I, I am the worst person when it comes to FOMO, like fear of missing out. And so I say yes to everything because I just don't want to miss out on stuff. And so it is honestly sometimes the most empowering thing, even though it feels really scary at the time to just say no, like literally just no, I I don't have the time or the bandwidth to do it. Um, I end up always feeling really guilty about it, but I end up just feeling like I chose myself first. And so sometimes it does, it's ended up feeling very empowering to me that the act of choosing yourself is actually something that I didn't realize could be so empowering. And finally, what are you binging on? What are you watching, listening to, reading, uh, eating for that matter? Um, I listen, I, I mean, like I'm a huge consumer of content, but, um, I would say that right now, um, especially living here in Washington, DC with everything going on with, you know, the fight for racial justice and black lives matter. I've been doing a lot of unlearning and relearning mm-hmm. generally for the last four or five years, I would say, but obviously that's picked up a lot for me. So, um, I've been reading a lot by black authors and people of color. And I've been, you know, I just finished watching, I'm not your Negro, James Baldwin, uh, that Peck, the documentary that he did. And I watched the 13th, Ava DuVernay. And so just reading and consuming a lot of content to kind of interrogate my place um, as an ally and and how to be a better accomplice ultimately. And so that's something that's been really important and important to me. And then something that's been really fun is I've been binging a lot of Korean dramas, which Netflix, Netflix is a very (laughs) deep rabbit hole, I'm afraid. Well, that's great. And I love this, how to be a better accomplice. And uh, we, we all need to be that, that is for sure. So from pink noise to 180 degree feedback and kind of, you know, interrogating yourself as a leader, learning to say no and knowing that it's empowering to, to choose yourself. And then finally, I, I, like, this is really important for all of us, unlearning and relearning and really examining our own um, biases um, so we can be better accomplices. I love all that. Thank you. Kalsum Lakani, who is the co-founder, along with Mizba Nakfi of I2I Ventures, and then the CEO and founder of Invest to Innovate. I want to thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. If you are looking to get started on the cloud with AWS, our Activate program provides startups with a host of benefits, including AWS credits, technical support, training, and other resources to help grow your business. Head to aws.amazon.com backslash activate for more. Do us a favor and leave us a review. And if you know someone who we should have on the show, or maybe it's you, reach out to us at startupstories at amazon.com. And subscribe to AWS Startup Stories wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.